I really want to thank Johanna and WBEZ and Third Coast Festival, everybody, and certainly Chris Coach, who's been working with me all day, because really you are my community. There is, I think, a kind of language that develops. Some people speak French, and some people speak Swahili. And for me, I think I dream, breathe, and think now in radio, in metaphor, in image. I unfortunately haven't been able to be as many of the sessions uh, since yesterday or Thursday as I would have liked to have been, because I'm trying to distill uh, best hits, not only of myself, but other, other people. And it is enormous to think about all those kinds of things that I love and feel compelled by. It goes back, for me, almost to the beginning. Because a lot of us here are a fairly young audience, I would just like to say that you're looking at someone who was quite sure that she would absolutely, pivotally, never, ever, ever make it as a journalist. And uh, I was convinced of that because I had gone to school the middle two years in England, then graduated from Valparaiso University, all very lovely, but I had no connection whatsoever to the world of journalism, and, you know, nobody was really going to hire a humanitarian grad, you know, humanities lit grad, and took 11 different part-time jobs in Chicago before I ever got into radio. And the day of college commencement, I remember walking with my sister, and she said, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'd like to be a foreign correspondent, but I don't know how. And, I, and she said, so what are you going to do? And I said, well, there's a traveling rodeo here in town, and I've joined it. And she said, you just tell the biggest lies. Four months later, it all came to grief in Nitro, West Virginia. The traveling rodeo had gone from Maine to West Virginia. It was a complete fly-by-night scam. The idea was that you would sell tickets to this rodeo uh, to sponsor you know, disadvantaged children in these little communities. And half the people in the rodeo were wanted, and the other half just hadn't been arrested yet. And if I had only been, you know, a little older, it would have been fabulous. My idea was I was going to travel and write and take pictures and become and publish them in Life magazine and become an overnight journalistic sensation. But I spent my 22nd birthday in the hospital with a concussion and a dislocated hip, all complicants of the rodeo. So when I moved here, I... Uh, <laughs> that was before I even moved here. When I moved here, I had not learned my lesson and took a job with a trade magazine called Travel Age Mid-America. And they told me, again, that the job was to travel and write and take pictures. And it actually, secretly, was a magazine that went to travel agents, and my job was completely secretarial, and it paid $80 a week. And, you know, this wasn't 1910. And the one assignment they gave me was to go to Galveston, Texas, and report on the departure of a cruise ship from Galveston. And I thought, this is fabulous. But I had no money. My sister sewed my dress. And I was at the captain's table. I had little rhinestones. Oh, perfect cue. Holding this dress up. And I thought, they probably think I'm really old, like 27. <laughs> <clears throat> and the little rhinestones got really sick of straining to hold up this negligee-style dress and went, ping! and fell into my lap, at which point 40 waiters came out with flaming baked Alaska. <laughs> this is just not the kind of thing you could make up. 
so I totally believe in the serendipity of, of life. And how did that lead me to radio? Because in one of those part-time jobs, one of my students, I was teaching part-time at a community college without having any experience whatsoever myself, said that she would like me to recommend her for a traffic job on the radio. And I remember thinking, well, Vivian will never get up at 2 o'clock in the morning, but I'd like that job. Shameless, awful, but, you know, lots of career stuff tends to, you know, sometimes veer to the shameless and awful. And uh, I, I got it, you know. <laughs> and they were advertising for someone who had driven a taxi in Chicago. And I called them up and I said, I drive a hack. And they said, we knew you were lying, but you sounded cute and we wanted to meet you. So there you go. It was not politically correct. It was a different time. It was someplace like 1979. From there, I really did fall in love with the whole energy, the syncopation, the, the, the sense of mesmerizing and, and, if you will, seducing an unseen listener, that, uh, that you could talk in, in this intimate way inside someone else's head, that you could wed voices. And these were sort of notions I had uh, almost from the get-go, because here in Chicago... Those of you not from the city should know that the city had an incredible tradition, of course, as you may know, of investigative journalism, of fantastic television stations, of good radio stations. And some of this is all, you know, all of media has, of course, had a huge revolution since then. But um, I learned from some of the best people in the business. And this was, I, my, in my mind, I was going to play for you some of my first nighttime talk show, which was called Back Talk. And we used to call it back slap. And so imagine this. The first time I was ever really live on the air was for two hours. And I had to talk about um, unstable tribes in the Middle East and the gold standard, two things of which I was sure would never have anything to do with my life whatsoever. Mm. And then someone at WTTW said to me, you should listen to this new network called National Public Radio. So I said, what's that? And got, you know, the brief description, just listen. So I turned it on, and the first thing I ever heard was what you are about to hear now. And if Chris, you could give us the first cut, and this voice may sound familiar to you. Anybody could take a piece of steel and make a car out of it. Uh, not the voice. But to take that iron ore and that coal and make the coal into coke and put the right mixture of stone in it and get the right heat to it, and make steel. Now that's something else. That, that's a different kind of guy that can make the steel. Anybody can bend it and shape it. And that's pretty much the attitude they had here. You know, the fabricators were looked down on by the, the real steel men. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that whole culture is, is permeated the place. The uh, well, St. Anthony's Church, for instance, which overlooks the section of the valley where the Briar Hill works, the Ohio works is located. You know, the mural on the front is not you know, St. Anthony Blessing Valley. The house is a steel mill. You know. And I thought, who is this guy talking about the culture of making steel and why are they talking about making steel and what about making steel? Within two years, I was NPR's steel reporter. But it was the, um, it was the next voice that uh, actually is the one I found most compelling. And I thought, this is the most ridiculous question I've ever heard anyone ask in my entire life. And I don't know who this guy is, but maybe I should meet him. Taverns in Youngstown are not the nighttime industry you might infer from most Milltown characterizations. Family activities and enterprises are more popular on Saturday nights, and there were three leagues rolling at the Northside Lanes in Youngstown this past weekend. 
Jim Somerville is a 10-year veteran of the steel shearing crew. I want a steady job. And, you know, I like the steel mill. I, I like the job I did. I enjoy going to work. In steel shearing work, Mr. Somerville later explained, he stands at a point along the assembly tracks, his hands clenched to the grip of an iron lathe, waiting for an orange log of steel writhing with heat to drop from a chute into a lead iron cradle before his arms. Mr. Somerville then presses forward with his lathe, shearing fiery steel, sparks shuddering and exploding. I wanted to do as many metaphors as this guy. As you might expect, too, Jim Somerville is a powerful-looking man, and the sleeves on his red satin team jacket cannot be buttoned over the muscles on his wrists. Are you telling me if a company came in here uh, and said to you, we're going to make pink plastic flamingos uh, that are going to be on everybody's lawn in trailer parks in Sarasota, Florida, and we'll pay you just about the same money that you earned in the steel business. Uh, will you work for us? Would you be every bit as, as proud of the job you were doing making pink This is an unemployed steel worker steel that, he, that he's talking to. Who puts food on your table and pays your rent and your house payment or whatever? What would you do? I'd make pink plastic flamingos. Um, but does it, would it give you the same sense of pride at doing something important? What's important? Uh, making, building something, I think, is important. Creating something. Reporter <laughs> struggling to answer his own question. It was question. so important, how can we not have a job? That was it, Scott Simon, 1979. And I thought that uh, years later I painted the door of the NPR Chicago Bureau pink in honor of this question. What compelled me was that he had com thought completely outside the box. He had labored to get inside this guy's head. In the uh, late 70s, early 80s, tens and tens of thousands of, of, and they were almost all men, were laid off in this country, dislocated from an entire way of life. Many of the steel mills at that time had been built before the turn of the century. There was a steel culture. South Chicago, of course, is a steel town. Youngstown, Ohio. I spent over a year in the Monongahela Valley. But what I loved was this whole sense of someone asking a question that, came, that, that really was so not flat-footed, so demanding that this man think with him. And I was just completely captivated. And it so happened, as I mentioned serendipity a little bit ago, that the NPR Chicago Bureau was opening that very week. And they were looking for young people to come and do stuff for this new show called Morning Edition. And so I knocked on the door. And that guy, Scott Simon, opened it and uh, said, uh, hi, come on in. My colleague and I were a little fagled a couple when we were just making tea, and maybe you'd like to have some. And I was just, what? And I had some chopsticks in my hair, and he said, th that was the fashion then, and he said, I see you've had an unfortunate accident at a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> we had a bureau that, you know, Daughter of the Queen of Sheba, my memoir, is being adapted into a film. This, of course, has gone on for five years, but it looks like this year it may actually really kick off. And we've had various actresses lined up to play, to play myself, Gwyneth Paltrow and then Reese Witherspoon, and it won't be either of them. And, but it is going to be set around the Chicago Bureau. 
And we would spend days thinking of the right word, the right phrase, the right question, the right approach. And we spent a lot of time on the why questions, particularly. And you might think that there could be no correspondence in my life. To, and, and, and Scott was, for me, a, you know, a heavy-duty influence. But I would like to play for you a piece from just a couple of years ago in Afghanistan. I went... Um, well, I taught there this summer. I taught radio diaries to Afghans, which we can talk about later. It was a fabulous experience. We kind of did My Life is Afghanistan. I was totally ripping off Ira's idea, but boy, if you think it works here, you should see how it works there. It was brilliant. And um, the whole notion of work, of culture, of asking people why they do things, to me, I thought of that same steel story by Scott in 2001. I arrived uh, uh, about 10 days after the Taliban had gone. And just in case you think that deadline radio needs to be endlessly boring, which it very, very, very usually is, and you know, I think a lot of the creativity has left the news gathering process, and I am on a one-woman mission to change that. Here's, here's a story. It's like Morning Edition needed a story. What can you give us? And I thought... Well, I'll just look out the window. And this piece is about the kinds of jobs that you would see in Afghanistan. At least if we get it right, that's what it's going to be about. Chris? Morning edition from NPR News. I'm Bob Edwards. The new leaders of Afghanistan have said they'll need massive aid from the rest of the world to rebuild their country. Except perhaps for the presence of automobiles, life on a typical block in Kabul works more like a medieval village than a capital city. Afghanistan is a country without a post office, a telephone network, roads, or streetlights. Day-to-day life in Kabul is like turning back the clock hundreds of years. NPR's Jackie Lydon reports. Children play soccer on the streets of Kali Fatullah, which is the name of a crumbling castle in this neighborhood. Their parents work at jobs like something out of a fairy tale. The woodcutter, the tinsmith, the water carrier, the carter of goods. It's a typical block, and it's where Mary bakes flat loaves of bread, squatting behind a dirty rag for a door, over a hole in the ground that serves as an oven. She, the bread, and the walls are all the color of wood smoke. Expertly, she pats the dough flat. My husband is very old, so I have to bake bread because I want to support my two daughters. So I have to do this hard job. Another worker farther down the street is Mohammed Nasser, a water carrier. Age 20, he's illiterate. He pumps the water by hand, a sight we see anywhere because running water is rare. I'm working for a bakery and I collect this water for the bakery. You do this every day? Every day, three times a day. For this, he earns $2 a day. Kali Fatullah's streets, like many in Kabul, are full of people pulling huge carts with goods piled so high they nearly topple. And usually it is people, not donkeys or a horse, who pull the carts. This one is pulled by Syed Hodayat, 20. He's carrying gas canisters. Propane gas burners are used for cooking. As for heating, if you're lucky, you can buy a wood stove, handmade from the most prosperous merchant on the street, Mohammed Issa, the tinsmith. He looks a dapper 65. He's 45. He's beating a tube of sheet metal. Because it is winter, we are making wood stoves and also pipes for the people to use. 
So do most people use wood to heat their homes? Yes, most people are using wood because it's much cheaper and cool or much expensive. Do you like what you do? Yes, I like my work and I'm happy when I'm busy. If you want firewood for Mr. Issa's stoves, you go down the street to the woodcutter. And if you're one of the lucky few who's managed to find a television set and you want a satellite dish antenna on top of your house, which is legal now that the Taliban have left, then you can get one made out of tin that looks awfully familiar, just like Lemon Pledge. This is the metal that is coming from abroad and it's especially for this use. It's not a second-hand metal piece that he's using now. But it says furniture polish on it. This is metal that would go around us, an aerosol spray of furniture polish. Uh-huh. I mean, I can read it. Uh-huh. It's in English. In a country with no infrastructure and little education, everyone wants something better for their children. What we hope, by God's help, say the people of Khali Fatullah, is that things will be different now under the new government. One of them showed a satellite telephone to his daughter, amazed it could call New York. You see, he said thoughtfully, this is what people in other countries were learning to make while here in Afghanistan we were killing each other. Jackie Leiden, NPR News, Kabul. Four minutes, ten seconds, including the intro. To me, a lot of good radio is fantastic storytelling, and we used to discuss this a lot in the Chicago Bureau, and we would talk about the first line, the topic sentence. And one of the things I learned at the time was very much that you would take some particular detail. So you wouldn't say, the flood has ravaged Maumee, Indiana. You'd say, the street sign is cocked and twisted at Elm and Vine or whatever. And, you know, these are subtle things, but they are things that lead the listener somewhere. There was a wonderful producer, you know, there was so much stuff I could have put on tape and I didn't have time. <laughs> Who does? And also, how do you choose? But there's a guy called Keith Talbot, and I understand that Keith is coming back from 20 years at, at Disney or something to do more radio. And uh, he used to talk about building a path through your own knowledge. And I think that all good pieces have that in common. Because you know how it is. You go out and you get hours and hours of tape, and then you get quite tired of even the, you know, the subject. And you need to build a path through your own knowledge. And uh, uh, I, I really like to think about that in, in work. Also, when I came to the Bureau, um, and I was its first reporter. By the way, I didn't start immediately. I went back to backslap for a while. And then uh, the news director at, at, at the NBC FM station where I was doing this Sunday night news show decided that he wanted the job, and so he took it and fired me. And I went back to, uh, to NPR. Um, I, we talked about the why questions. Jonathan Smokey Bear was really interested in the whys of things. So he said, what do you want to know? What is your why? And I said, I want to know why cops shoot people. And he said that he thought that was a really good idea for a story. I can't imagine that being, you know, something that a, that a desk editor would have as a point of conversation with a young journalist today, but they should. And, uh, that occasion, the, uh, uh, piece that we worked on for a couple of months 
And I honestly don't remember quite where we meet this story, but uh, I think it's actually at the very beginning, so let's, let's listen. I've broken everything down into uh, little excerpts so I could talk between things. And we can start, we can take questions too at some point, obviously. So Chris, if you'd give us... The right to use their guns is a privilege that we give to our police officers. Robert and like Paul most Lynch. large police departments, Chicago's teaches its officers how and when to use deadly force. But a number of citizens' groups in Chicago are demanding changes in those regulations. A citizens' review board created by Mayor Jane Byrne in response to earlier allegations of police brutalities has been disbanded because of lack of funds. So from Chicago, Jackie Lydon prepared this report. Okay, the line is ready. Ready on the right. Ready on the left. Ready on the fire. It takes about one-fifth of a second for the bullet to leave the police officer's gun and tear through the paper target with a man's This is 1980. When the shooting ends, one officer strolls over to stand behind his target, superimposing the bullet-riddled image onto his own body. In a quiet but graphic way, it brings home the purpose of this target practice. The policeman is shooting today under orders from the range officer. He has been taught in the police academy about what the law says in regard to his authority to shoot someone. But when he aims his gun at a human being in that final instant, quite literally a fraction of a second, the decision to shoot or not to shoot is made by the officer alone. The use of deadly force is a last resort measure. Chicago Police Superintendent Richard Brzezik. There are basically two generic categories uh, that police officers in Illinois can use deadly force. Uh, one is uh, what I call the self-defense situation, either defending their own life or some third person's life. Uh, the other policy is uh, the, the apprehension policy, in other words, uh, the circumstances under which police officers can use deadly force to apprehend a certain type of felony offender we call here in Illinois uh, the forcible felon. It also states that no police officer will necessarily endanger himself, his life, or any other person's life to conform to this policy. Deputy Chief of Patrol Administration, George McMahon. We go a step further and say that you will exhaust all other efforts. You will use every reasonable means at your disposal before resorting to the use of deadly force. We're going to hear from the cops. And I used to envy John Burnett in Texas that he would have all these great accents and these great voices and, and sort of Texasisms. Some of the charm, I think, has worn off for a lot of us in that regard. But, um, but, you know, when I listen back to these Chicago tapes, I'm also just struck by the voices and the frankness with which people speak. So I think what we're going to hear next are some of the cops. Oh, this is the shooting range. On a real life situation, this is a cop. Tension, the adrenaline's in. You probably don't even hear the shots that go off. Nick Rosado, range officer at the police academy. It happens that quick, and that's what we're teaching. We're teaching about how to shoot well, but no, when to shoot, of course, and survival. We want them to do the best they can to survive. You relearn everything when you hit the street. You get, you get the theory behind everything in the classroom, but working a street is totally different than a classroom. And one of the first things the officers learn is that simple answers and neat solutions are hard to come by. If you go into a burglary, man with a gun, any car like that, you go into a dark alley, you see a form. Now you draw your gun, you think maybe he's got a gun. You don't know. You see a flash of metal. Now it's your judgment. Does he have a gun or doesn't he? It's, it's, 
a very thin line. Very thin line. I had a, one officer, one of my partners, we used to put ourselves in these different situations. What will we do? What will we do? You know, sure, it's easy to say, yeah, we'll, we'll blow the guy up. There's no problem there, you know. Yeah, but what, what if you're doing it's You're a little bit on the shady side. What if he doesn't have that weapon? Or what if the weapon he has is a toy? You know, uh, it, it, it happens, it happens. Uh, but he, like he used to say, well, he says, I'd rather get judged by 12 than carried by six. There you have it. And, you know, I so thought of these guys when there was the Amadou Diallo shooting in, uh, in New York uh, a couple of years ago. And then they go on to discuss some of their provocations. Okay. They can shoot you. Ah. If they say they see the other side. Shiny, they can shoot, shoot you. The if person they shot. you move your elbow, they can shoot you just for any given reason. Wallace Davis, a black man, was shot by a white Chicago police officer in 1975. Recently, he was awarded the largest civil damage judgment, $700,000, in Chicago's history. The 29-year-old Davis has now dedicated his life to trying to curb abuse of police power. Before the shooting, Davis was a businessman who owned auto repair shops and a barbecue restaurant. One night, Davis and a friend caught two burglars by surprise in the restaurant, but the men got away while Davis waited for the police. Injured in the struggle, Davis and his friend were driving to the hospital when they were stopped by Officer Joseph Frio and his partner. Nothing said, no threats, no nothing. Put our hands on the car, Bill Frio shot me in the back with a 357 Magnet. I didn't fall. He grabbed me by my hair, kicked my legs from under me, and started stumping me. I asked him, I said, man, why are you doing this to me with tears in my eyes? He bent over, put the gun between my eyes, and said, die, nigga, die, or I'll blow your brains out. And let's hear the last cut in this piece. The last couple cuts, whatever you've got. A lot has to do with stress. A, a guy might be getting ready for work and his wife might start on him. For one thing or another. And all of a sudden he goes to work and he's aggravated, he's ticked off. Then the pressures come at the gym. And it, it, never, it never fails. But something's going to happen right off the bat. And boom. Bit of a cheap shot on my part. Might not have mixed that in there if I did it today. And then the end. Totally cooperate with him. If you feel that you're Uncle Tom by saying, yes, sir, no, sir, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, then be Uncle Tom. I'd rather see you be Uncle Tom than see you be in the mob or see you in the hospital somewhere. Believe your shiny belts off. Don't wear those shiny belts. Don't smile too much if you got shiny teeth. And please, for God's sake, keep your hands visible where they can see it. Do not make no aggressive mo motions. As they say, they can shoot you for a motion or a notion. Or anything. Don't make none of them. And do not take any hostility out at the cop. You may be totally innocent. They still have the power to destroy you. Now, those of you from Chicago might remember the name Wallace Davis. Wallace Davis went on to become a Chicago alderman. There was no school like the City of Chicago Council and the election of Harold Washington, his death, the subsequent civil conflict for his successor, uh, and what we still have today, I think, is a certain boisterousness in Chicago politics, although I think it has calmed a lot since the 1980s. But Davis took full advantage of his large award and his popularity and his name recognition to become an alderman. And within a couple of years was found to be embezzling funds, and as far as I know, he is still in Menard Prison. So just the object lesson of how things uh, change or don't. 
we, some really fabulous colleagues came through the Chicago Bureau. And, you know, I have to confess that we did work for it in the day when you could put the phone on hold, go to the Cubs game, and tell the, uh, tell the desk that, you know, you would get it to them tomorrow, something that, you know, you just couldn't do today. But we would come back from the baseball game and work late into the evening. And this would be myself. In fact, I used to sleep at the Bureau at least one night a week because I didn't have money, taxi fare, to go all the way home to, I think today the neighborhood's called Wrigleyville. Anyway, it's up by the Cubs Park. Um, the boys also had certain games they played, pitch penny into, you know, a jug. We had a lot, it was our home, and we all lived there. And it was myself, Scott, Ina Jaffe, who's now in California, John Hockenberry, and later came Ira Glass. And, uh, of course, we had all known Ira because he'd been hanging around Washington for a long time, working on the various shows, and then came out. And one of, there are many, many favorite Ira pieces. I will say that my experience with a former fiance was the inspiration for one of his first Wild Room pieces, which became um, This American Life, and it was about pathological liars. <clears throat> so my taste has improved just a little bit. Anyhow, this is a piece I love. He had been following Taft High School for over a year, this is a more recent piece. I think it is from around 1994, and uh, it's about kids. Well, I'm, I don't want to give it away. I think you'll catch, catch right away what it's about. Throughout this month, all oh, over the Because country, you have an intro. Nighttime has meant high school seniors in hotel ballrooms dressed in formal wear. NPR's Ira Glass has spent the year following events at Taft High School in Chicago, and recently he headed out to a hotel by the airport for the senior prom. All year long, the teachers see students who slouch and gossip, students who wear clothing that teachers don't understand, students who need prodding and discipline and constant surveillance. And then, on prom night, the students reappear, transformed as in a dream. And the teachers wander around remarking to each other, can you believe how well-behaved they are, how grown-up they seem? Math teacher Jerry Pad has helped plan the prom for years. Aren't they, aren't they really great? They really are. Fun. We never have any trouble. They're just great kids. Well, these are plus these are the seniors that have made it. All the assholes are out. Excuse me. All the troublemakers are gone by the you know, it's junior year or whatever. Teachers dance with students, and in general, it was a lovely, happy truce between the faculty and the teenagers. That I wanted to play that prom piece, but I hadn't heard it in years. And I thought, did we really have assholes on national public radio? I mean, I know we have had them, <clears throat> but not on the air, of course. Anyway, I, I, uh, I think that's just, you know, the frankness, the directness, the, the intimacy. Radio is about dialogue, of course. You know that. I don't need to be didactic and tell you that. But I could just gently remind you of that. And the best pieces for me have that dialogue between the interviewer and the subject, if you want to be that dry about, you know, what's going on, and making the microphone disappear, you know, things we've all heard for a long time. And Ivor does that brilliantly in, in this piece. And then because he does, you do, which is why I personally think you must never take yourself out of a story. Um, we can talk about that philosophically later. At various vogue seasons over the last 25 years at NPR, we've had editors insist that the reporter not be in the story. I think that's a ridiculous edict. I think, I think it has to happen, you know, just you have to see whether or not the cut of tape bears the weight of the question. 
but we know the questions are there. So I would like you to pay special attention to the, uh, the sort of intimacy that Ira creates with these, with these kids. If we could have the next cut, please, Chris. On the dance floor, there was a certain amount of copping feels and kissing, but the sexual tension at the prom hit a kind of surreal zenith when the DJ told the boys to bring chairs down to the dance floor. Girls were seated in the chairs, and the garter ceremony began. We're going to count down from 10. Over 100 teenage girls presented bare legs with garters. All men have to put your hands behind your back. Meaning, grab the garter with your teeth. All right, we want to count backwards from 10. 10. Nine. This is the kind of activity that separates the just friends prom dates from the real dates. And dozens of just friends stood around the edges of the hall in various states of discomfort. Three, two, one. A hundred kneeling teenage boys bring their faces up against the slightly sweaty thighs of their dates, grip multicolored garters with their teeth, and drag them off the leg. It's a shocking and amazing sight, but when I ask teachers about it later, they all say, where have you been? They've done this for years. I just love it. I mean, this is way before his show. And I think this is now the... Uh, so he spends all night with them, and it's, you know, it, by now it's like 5 o'clock in the morning. So. One thing you forget when you're not a teenager is how much time teenagers spend just standing around, waiting, waiting to get organized, waiting for everyone to show up, waiting for the person buying liquor to return. Percentage-wise, this was the largest part of the evening. Invariably, during this time, someone starts to get on someone else's nerves. For Charlotte and George, the feeling was mutual. She always yaps, man. She never shuts up. You know, she just keeps on talking and talking. It's like, why don't you shut up? And it's like the tone of voice she uses, too. She like the whiny tone of voice, you know. It's like, I don't want to hear it. I had to put up with her when she first started going to Taft, man, and I hated it then and I hate it now. It's like this is her date, you know, I can't believe it. Something that's bringing me down, you know. And then the evening finally winds up at a Denny's. It's four in the morning. You ready to order? I want salad with no mushrooms. What can I get for you? You know what have? I'm going to have the plate against land. Now, if this were a movie, you would expect at some point teary reminiscences of their years together, some reflection on where they'd been and where they were going. But there was, frankly, none of this. Instead, they gossiped, they floated pleasantly from topic to topic. Fate had handed them a prom, and they knew they were supposed to stay out all night, and they kept wandering from place to place, waiting for something to happen. Nothing much did, but nothing bad did either. It's starting to get light outside. You are going to get going soon? I'm going to sleep all day. I, I can't sleep all day. Subscribe in the morning. I don't need this. <laughs> I'm like a zombie now. The sun was up. Birds chirped faintly over the sound of the freeway. Back in the car, George said that the best moment of the prom was when he got to slow dance with Carla. Mark said it was when he missed getting a ticket from those cops. Charlotte said it was when she looked around at all the people at the prom and realized that she no longer had to return to Taft High School. <laughs> So there you have it. And I think that radio really draws on the imagination. Another thing we used to say in the Bureau is Smokey Bear is a huge Melville fan. And he, I've never actually tried to research the veracity of this, 
used to say that Herman Melville said that to have a mighty subject, you must have a mighty, to have a mighty novel, you must have a mighty theme. Of course, nothing's mightier than Moby Dick. But we used to talk a lot about that. And, and because the Midwest was in many ways in tumult in the 1980s, the layoffs of the steel workers, the death of the family farm, uh, I mean, over 100,000 farms collapsed in, in Iowa alone. I used to know Iowa like the back of my hand. And once went to a story where a farmer had shot, uh, in this order, his neighbor, his banker, his wife, and then himself. Uh, spent three days. There was a piece I could have brought with me uh, for this session, but did not. Um, and it's quite a heavy piece, as you might imagine. Um, but we also, I think, leavened it with just, you know, stuff that happened, stuff that came over the transom, if you will, uh, a nice notion that's been well collected and exploited in a good way by Jay Allison. And one day we got something over the transom about a group that, well, I'm just going to let this piece speak for itself, and we decided to go for it. So if you would switch the disc to the piece that has sugar in it. Could you do that? In the early stages, you can blame it on your sweet tooth, a candy bar here, a chocolate cupcake there, an extra helping Neil of all-natural vanilla fudge ice cream. But then the day comes when you just can't stop at one Twinkie, and dreams of hot fudge sundaes and banana splits become nightmares. You've become a sugar junkie. Two reformed sugar addicts have formed a group in Chicago to help those hooked on sugar to kick the habit. Jackie Lydon prepared this report. My name is Jim. I'm addicted to sugar. I would get up in the morning. I'd have a sweet roll and a cup of coffee. I'd go to work. I'd, I skipped lunch, and I remember eating uh, a Susie Q, which is a uh, it's a little cake with uh, filled with uh, cream, which I really like to eat, and I ate a couple of those for dinner. I, 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 uh, I live alone, so I, I figured I wouldn't cook, and I had a couple uh, pecan rolls. Then came the day when Jim faced the calculation that he was consuming about three tablespoons of sugar each hour, 125 pounds a year. Sugar had been stirred, sprinkled, or snuck into everything he ate. He preferred a Suzy Q to a steak, and Jim, surprised one day by an astronomical dental bill, told his brother Larry, it's that sugar, I'm hooked. Together, the Brothers McManus concocted Sugar Abusers Anonymous. Her name is Rita. Rita? Okay. My name is Larry. This is... Jim, this is, this is like an Alcoholics uh, Anonymous meeting, or it's like a group of drug addicts talking. You always crave it. You always want it. For people like us, sugar is at the root of many of our problems. Sugar abusers meetings follow. I could not believe I was at this anonymous Sugar abusers A preamble is read in which they admit their sugar dependency. Number one, we have admitted that we are powerless over sugar, and that sugar had made our lives unmanageable. Unmanageable, say sugar abusers, in that in addition to ill health, they suffered the definite lack of a sweet disposition and dizzying emotional shifts. Consumption was paramount. Testimonials are presented about the degradation of addiction. But this, you know, this we had just gotten this flyer for this meeting of Sugar Abusers Anonymous and went with it, and it was delicious. Another time, Smokey was reading, a, I don't know, one of the suburban newspapers, and he said, look at this. And it was an advice column by the rocker Ted Nugent's mother. 
Ma Nugent. And I tried to bring that piece out here for you, but it would have to, you know, be retrieved from the University of Maryland. But but she was just just fabulous, and she was as you know down to earth as he was insane, and it made just a wonderful juxtaposition. And I I really love the kind of juxtaposition of what you would expect with what surprises you. I also think that that sometimes you just have to be able to trust your instincts, and this is something that you have to cultivate. You have to trust. It has to be trial and error. It may not work. One little example of this I can think of is. Once I was in Washington, and the Mississippi was flooding and flooding and flooding, and they wanted me to come back out to Chicago and uh, go down the Mississippi and file some story for all things considered each night. They didn't care what it was, just give us a story from the Mississippi. So I gave them stories on a high school prom queen who had run back into her house for her corsage. In another town, um, there was a story of a circus elephant buried in 1930 when it died in this town and its bones had floated up into you know the street and now they didn't know what to do with them and I remember one of the Chicago Bureau engineers coming down and saying to me I met up with him in Granite City Illinois he said do you know where the FEMA office is and I said no uh, you know the Federal Emergency Management Act reconstruction thing he said do you know where the Red Cross is I said um, gee no he said well how about the Highway Patrol I said um, gee, I, you know, I have no idea. And he said, you know, you don't know where anything is related to this entire story. And I said, yeah, but I put some really good stuff on the radio. So I'm not, you know, you obviously need to have a few more facts at hand, but they may not be as important as you would think. <laughs> um, should we keep going, or does anybody want to uh, have some questions now? I've certainly got more tape. I'm, we're going to, you know, have a space for questions for sure. I also really love good writing. Um, initially, I had thought to start this session with um, one of Scott's pieces in which there are at least, you know, 24 metaphors per inch. Um, but I do think that he is a beautiful and gifted and elegant, elegant writer. And I also think that the same is true of Alex Chadwick. And uh, I also, Alex, I think, has a particular gift for taking us along on his sense of discovery. So this is absolutely one of my favorite, favorite pieces, National Public Radio pieces of all time. I think it shows Alex in just totally at his best, his, his pleasure in who he's talking to, his sense of discovery, his willingness to trust his gut, his writing, and... Uh, uh, it, it is about the uh, Velvet Uprising, when the Czech Republic became the Czech Republic, when the communist government was overthrown uh, back in the early 1990s. So, um, it's this piece. Yes. Okay. But I would need a translator, he said. And so I decided to go to the university to find a student. And that is how I met Natasha Dudinska. I just found her in the entryway to the School of Philosophy and Languages at Charles University. The first person there who spoke English and said she could work right away. It was already dark, but we walked toward a taxi stand to get a cab to take us into the hills. And Natasha began to talk about the student strike. So, and democracy is something very fragile because we were not brought up, my generation was not brought up in democracy. And we don't know to express ourselves because we were not allowed. I'm 22 and 
all my childhood, all my young days, we were just pushed down. And we also don't know how to listen to each other. We want dialogue, we want discussion. What discussion means, at least two people are speaking. Both of them are speaking and listening to each other. I didn't realize then that the translator I'd hired was one of the organizers for the student strike committee, although I could tell she had unusual insight. So he has done what you always need to do, whether the piece is about the steel culture or a foreign country, which is find someone who's going to be a guide, a way in that journey, that pathway through the material. And since he is so engaged by this woman, he basically stays with her over the next 10 days. The uh, uprising is often called the Velvet Uprising because ostensibly it wasn't bloody, but of course it actually was bloody. I mean, you know, dozens of people didn't die, but, there, but the students had played a pivotal part in overthrowing uh, the authoritarian government. And uh, you will hear what happened to them in this next cut. The cab driver wept with joy and took us to Venceslas Square, the site of huge demonstrations in the past week where hundreds of thousands of Czechoslovaks demanded change. Now thousands gathered in the square again. Yakesh, hated Yakesh, had quit. Other top communists quit with him. They were gone, and as important, everyone in Venceslas Square was beginning to see that the communists might not know what was possible any longer either. My student activist translator said it was too soon to celebrate. There was too much left to do. And then she jumped in the air with pleasure. <laughs> Two days later, in Prague, I was working with Natasha again. We were at a theater where the opposition group Civic Forum was giving a press conference to report on a discussion that morning with the prime minister. It was in English, so Natasha simply stood and listened with me. After the spokesman finished his statement, a reporter asked again the question that always got asked. How had this occurred so quickly? After all, this same Civic Forum man speaking had fled across a rooftop eight days earlier to escape the police. Now his group negotiated with the government. What had happened? It was a student demonstration, he replied. You see, this was the first uh, demonstration when the riot police deliberately surrounded several thousands of people. Uh, they didn't give them a chance to escape. You can see it on those video, uh, videos uh, that uh, uh, the students are sitting there. The most famous and powerful pictures in Czechoslovakia today are seen on television screens that show what happened in Prague just three weeks ago when a group from the university held a march for democracy. On the videotape, the students sit in the narrow cobbled street Many of them are under a stone and plaster archway that runs along one sidewalk. It's nighttime. In the police lights, everything has an orange glow. <laughs> then they come, the police, in white helmets, some in red berets. They carry shields and long, thin clubs or batons. And without any provocation that you can see, they begin to beat the students. And it gets extremely violent and bloody. The students don't fight back. It may be a bit shallow to say so, or a bit cheap, or advantageous of me, but I was thinking that it's a very different picture of students than we had 
in the Ivor piece. But of course, they're older than the high school students, and they're compressed by extremely different circumstances. What's happening in all of this work, I think, is that ideas are being allowed to play, is that people being are allowed to talk. There is a sense of time passing, you know, things aren't just comprised into factoids that, you know, tell you something and then you forget about them later. And that to me is what a good radio piece should be. It should transform you. It, it should make you think again. It should be something that you are a different person after you've listened to it than you were before you've listened to it. And of course, finding those stories is a bit of a gift as well. But as we heard, he just went with this woman. He had never been to Prague or, you know, what is now the Czech Republic or any of it before. But, but he knew a good story. And it has a beautiful, beautiful ending. I saw the most beautiful moment of this revolution, or burst, or whatever it is, ten days ago in the big hall in the philosophy building where the huge group meetings took place. They were going to vote again on whether to continue the strike. It was late in the afternoon. The light was already shrinking from the big windows and the patterned glass in the ceiling. A violinist and a pianist from the National Philharmonic had come to play. We will do Dvorak, they said, his 100th sonata which he wrote for his children. There were several hundred students there. They filled the long stepped rows of bench seats and writing places, and they stood in the aisles where there was room and crowded the balcony and back, and they looked down to where the musicians stood near the low platform and the lectern at the front. Each face grew still. Natasha Dudinska was at one end of a long desk where the strike committee sat on the platform. She was wearing the same thick-knit red cotton sweater and green flannel shirt and black pants that she'd had on for three days. Her dark, tangled hair was tied back with a piece of black lace she'd gotten somewhere. She looked pale and colorless, except for a yellowing bruise the size of a dime on her forehead. At last, she folded her arms on the desktop and lowered her head. Her eyes closed for a moment and then struggled back open and closed again. For the only time in the ten days I saw her, she looked at peace. I thought she might actually be sleeping, but then her small head began to move with the rhythms of Dvorak. This is Alex Chadwick. Isn't that amazing? I'm not sure I've ever heard anything to this minute that is, has, as, has had as powerful a finish as that piece. And you know what, for me, is the thing that is so provocative in that ending is where did she get that bruise? You know, that he noticed it, that he placed it. Was she in that demonstration that we heard the tape of earlier? Did she, did she get beaten by, you know, some cop or did did she bump her head you don't know but you know that I mean her vulnerability in that moment 
her power at the same time, all sort of sort of perfectly expressed. I mean, so many things, it seems to me what I love about radio is that it can express the visceral. It lets you in, of course, because you're not just looking, I mean, I'm, I've just married a photojournalist and I adore photography and love the, the, the relationship that can be achieved with, with photos and we use them almost every story that we go out on now. But at that moment, I'd, I, have, I would say that if, if my groom were here, I don't need the photograph, that's the picture I want. And I really do want to say something about time. I mean, at the network, we have increasingly gone more and more to certain clocks and certain constructions of how a show should go. And there may be very, very good reasons for doing that, and it's something the member stations, frankly, seem to want. And, you know, I, I am not here to argue in any sense against that. There may be very good reasons for doing it. I'm sure there are. But you have to allow for time. You have to have places where work can happen that may take 19 minutes, an awkward time at this moment in a national public radio clock. It may take 11 minutes. It may take eight. What inspires me about a conference like this one is that clearly people are finding places to put work of longer lengths or odd lengths or, you know, because we used to, we used to be very, very proud to say this piece is as long as it needs to be. Now, quite frankly, many of them were a great deal longer <laughs> than they needed to be. That piece itself, I was like itching with my own blue pencil listening back to Alex. It didn't need to be 19. That's all right. You know, my own little mantra is always leave them wanting a little bit more, you know. Rather have them wanting a little bit more than, you know, bored to death in their driveway, glazed over in a driveway moment. And, uh, you know, um, I think that's a good, that, I think that's all to the good. Um, I want to contrast that with someone else. I'm just trying to think where we might want to go next. Let's go to Iran. Um, this is under the category of most fascinating person ever met. And after her, uh, we'll stop for a bit and take a couple of questions. And I can't remember if we left the intro to this piece on or not. We didn't. So that's all right. Before you start to play it, uh, I had gone to Iran in 1995. I had convinced the then foreign editor to send me. I've never, ever technically been on the foreign desk uh, at any moment. And um, so I had to talk. That we hadn't had anybody in there in six years. And I had met some Iranian academics who said, you must go. I mean, my interest in the Middle East was huge. I'd covered the first Gulf War and, and been based in Amman for over a year and really, you know, wanted to plumb Iran, which was not operating on the Arab-Israeli axis in the same way everything else was. And I had been told about a literature professor who I would find amazing. And so I happened to have my tape recorder rolling when she opened the door. Uh, her name is Azar Nafisi, and uh, she has come to read to write a book that some of you may have heard of. We can talk about that in a few minutes, but let's hear her opening the door of her apartment in Iran. And before she does, I will say to you that when I got to Iran, I interviewed a woman about her place in the revolution, and it was absolutely fascinating. And I wasn't, you know, and I said, would you please repeat that to me on tape? And she said, oh, my dear, no one in this country is going to talk to you on tape. I hope you haven't brought your tape recorder. And I said, well, actually, I'm a radio re reporter, and if it, 
you don't tell it to me on tape. It doesn't exist. And she said, I can't. And I actually, for the only time in my life, because I had talked this editor into sending me and spending $5,000, which felt, which felt like $50,000, you know, to National Public Radio, I broke out in hives. Between my fingers, under my arms, behind my ears, under my throat, and had to go to my first Death to America rally at Tehran University, broken out in hives and with a tissue held under my nose because it had some other sort of allergic reaction. And I thought, no one, I'm going to be fired, and no one is ever going to speak to me. But then, thank God, some man bounded into my hotel room and said, I am the nephew of Ayatollah Khomeini, and I am here to talk to you about the true Persians. And he said, to understand the Iranians, you must go to Yazd. Look, this is the sun symbol. And it was the symbol of Zoroastrianism, one of the world's oldest, mono, probably the first, not quite sure, monotheistic religions. It was eight years before I got back to do the story of Zoroastrianism. But through it, I met my husband. And um, it... Uh, it began a love affair with Iran that has never ended. I've now made uh, half a dozen trips, although not recently. It's been difficult to get a visa. So anyway, I was twigged to this literature professor. I, in the end, I wound up bringing back from that trip eight pieces. It was a story. It was a piece called uh, a series called Iran at the Crossroads, and uh, we got letters from every major Oriental Studies Institute in the United States: Harvard, Georgetown, Columbia. Uh, it's work I'm very proud of to this to this minute. Okay, so meeting Azar. Bye, Bye. He's going to his English class. <laughs> Azar Nafisi is getting ready to go to work. Since teaching at a university is technically a government job, she has to comply with the strictest Islamic dress code. It's a reverse procedure. She's going out, so she takes her makeup off. Over here, if I. Um give a lecture about revolution, uh, I won't be in trouble. But if I wear lipstick, I'll be in trouble. You know, so as a woman, you know, I have to rethink and redefine myself with the values which are right now in power. Western literature was encouraged in the Shah's time. Now it hardly seems relevant. The number of women teaching has also plummeted. Today, out of 1,700 professors at major universities in Tehran, only about 200 are women. I mean, our lives are so irreal. They're not just unreal, they're irreal. Do you mean unreal or surreal? I mean irreal in a sense. Uh, I'm oh trying to coin this word. Because, because when you talk about unreal or even surreal, you're presupposing a sort of a reality. But for me, reality is so much created in a void that every morning I get up, I invent my reality. You know? That fiction is much more real to me than reality. Nafisi is an iconoclastic woman who puts a tassel on the black scarf she must wear to class, and she's an iconoclastic professor who uses seemingly anything to nurture the imagination in a country overwhelmed by doctrine and slogans. On this day, the striking professor twirls in front of her class of men and women graduate students. She holds a daffodil and a pot of fake red poppies against her black shador to make a point. Is this a work of art? We are talking about points of view, from what point of view you see and view a flower. Her graduate classes are taught in English. Nafisi's reading list, all considered great works of the West, is filled with complex characters who consider their circumstances. The lonely heroes of Vladimir Nabokov, or Henry James' bad girl heroine, Daisy Miller. 
the impertinent Elizabeth in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. And in a not-so-thinly-veiled metaphor, there's Alice, a heroine who wanders where nothing is what it appears to be in Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Thinking again, the Duchess asked with another dig of her sharp little chin. I have a right to think, said Alice sharply, for she was beginning to feel a little worried. Just about as much right, said the Duchess, as pigs have to fly. When Alice comes back to the world of reality, she cannot look at reality. She cannot look at the grass. She Great miking job, Jackie. In the same way that she had looked at it before. So there would be a power in you which you get from fiction, which you get from that other. And with that power, once you look at your reality, you discover that things do not have to be the same way that they are now. So I fell in love with Azar Nafisi from second one. And I thought to myself, what is in that lipstick? Give me that lipstick, lady, because you are absolutely amazing. And uh, we became very, very good friends. And in that piece, what we did back in Washington, the piece was produced by DeVar. Actually, that piece was produced by Alice Winkler. But DeVar Ardalan produced the other seven pieces in that series, and I was, she is an amazingly talented producer, and in so many of these, of these pieces that you've heard today, I should be crediting the producers. I've mentioned Jonathan Baer. Uh, we have fantastic producers at National Public Radio. Devar Ardalan uh, is, is certainly one of them. Uh, anyway, we had uh, an actress read, just to remind the listener, the parts of James or Nabokov or Lewis Carroll. But I wanted an actor who had been born in Iran so that you would have English that sounded like, you know, a Persian speaker was, was speaking instead of what always happens in, in pieces from the field actually happens less than it used to where you would say, oh, that's Steve Monroe pretending to be an Afghan in the street or, oh, did you hear, you know, Smokey, he was, you know, a Mexican guy today and, you know, Guadalajara or, or, or whatever. And I think it helped... The, the integrity. And she really um, reached her students. Could we skip to the very last cut? This is a very brief little cut. But I want you to think about this is a Muslim man speaking in 1995 in Tehran. I'm just trying to say that uh, what matters is that everybody should have the right to have a voice of his own. And others should respect that voice, no matter how different that voice is. And uh, this is what I found in James, actually. A part of relationships find, found in James actually turns ar around this question of voices, that how you treat other people's voices actually shapes your identity. I don't always think that you need to have a lot of time on the air, but one thing I do think is you need to spend a lot of time with people. I'd love to hear your opinions, questions, comments, I've got a couple more things I'd like to play, but uh, it might be a good time to just kind of stretch your, you know, stretch your receptivity. A little high. Um, you were talking earlier about getting started and how you joined this rodeo thing. And I think a lot of us are probably wondering, like, how do we get into radio, you know, without making that mistake? So... Could you, could you please give us some tips? Just don't join the Diamond S Rodeo. It's extinct anyway. But no, is your question to not make the mistake of getting distracted? How, how to get into radio. How to get into radio. As a young producer. As a young producer. 
I don't think there's any one way. I think that you're coming to a conference like this one is a really great first step. I think the fact that there are so many places to put work today is a very good thing. I mean, there is the, there's the, there are websites to stream it. There are uh, big programs at every member station now. When I oops, when I keep doing that, when I started at NPR, I, I used to have to, this you know minute long pitch. Hi, Jackie Lydon, National Public Radio. I know you've never ever heard of it, but we're like the sister of public television. I mean, it was a crude and not even true uh, description. But it kind of got people thinking. Today, so many of the member stations have their own programs. This show that WBEZ is doing, I've only unfortunately heard it once, which is mainly because I haven't been in the country, not um, resound. Um, the fact that satellite radio is probably going to be exploding things in 17 million other ways that we haven't figured out yet. So I think the trick for a young producer, though, now would be, how can I make good radio and get paid for it? Because you can make good radio, but can you sell it for what you, you know, the hours you, you put into it? And it may be that it is going to be a bit more like getting into, you know, the literature game or, uh, you know, print. I never tried to get a job in a newspaper because when I graduated, my mother sent me an article from the Milwaukee Journal that talked about a glut of journalism graduates, not that I was one, but that, you know, because of Woodward and Bernstein, you need not apply, and the last line of it was, so where will all these young people interested in journalism go? What will they do? Nobody knows. <laughs> so I, I don't have a foolproof method except to say that you must not take no for an answer. You know, there was a wonderful piece that Scott once did on the Chicago City News Bureau, which was like a boot camp for journalists in this town. And it had two rubrics. And when I was teaching in Afghanistan this summer, I actually used them. One was, if your mother says she loves you, check it out. And the other was, I came here to get the story or a boot print on the seat of my pants. And I think you should approach your career like that. If, believe me, people did not just swing the doors open every time I had an idea. And people didn't send me because I was the first one they thought of in various places. I think I've always had a relationship more to the work, and I abide by that relationship. And that costs you sometimes, big time sometimes. But you have to have faith in your work and your vision. And you absolutely can't let people beat you down. You just can't, or the work won't survive. And I think that probably applies to almost any career. So that is my, you know, condensed bit of advice to a young producer. And I, I, I think, you know, I think it's good advice. I do. Anyone else? This is sort of another question along the same lines. You know, people who are maybe young producers who are trying to make a decision. And uh, it kind of encouraged me that you said at the beginning you, you thought you'd never be a successful journalist. Absolutely. Um, can you just tell me, like, what are some things that you now see in your own personality that really sets you up to be a success, and what are some things that you had to strengthen? Does that make sense? Was it, I didn't hear the very last thing you said. And what were some things that you had to strengthen? Like, where are some strengthen. places that you had to grow, you know? Good question. Um, I had an enormous amount to learn. I think what may, I think, you know, there's a wonderful book by a guy called Charles Gaines called Stay Hungry. And some of you may have seen the movie version because it's an early thing with, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
I was, in, I was told to read that book by a photography professor I once had. But what's fabulous about it is that the weightlifters are, you know, they have to stay hungry to make their weight, but also for their game. And I think uh, my advice would be that you must possess, when I said don't have be diminished, is unbridled curiosity. I didn't have to worry about that. I had my first newspaper when I was seven years old, and it was a mimeograph sheet, and my mother drew the boxes, and I went out and made up stories and took them around the neighborhood about a turtle that runned away. And, you know, both that sank. So you have to, that, that I think is one thing to maintain. But what I had to learn was um, a sense that, as A.J. Liebling, the great um, New Yorker writer, once said, I can do it faster than anybody who can do it better, and I can do it better than anybody, do it, than anybody who can do it faster. And I did have to learn to uh, get organized. And I did have to learn that, you know, we actually did need to know some facts. Like, what year did this happen? And how many people were killed? And um, Celeste Wesson is running around here somewhere, and she's a, a wonderful editor, and she was my editor. And I had gone out to do something on a major um, drug scandal, some AMA story, and she said, so what was the name of the drug company? You know, and that I really needed to strengthen. <laughs> but those are kind of easy things. Really, you know, those are lists of facts, and, and they need to be there, and you need to test them. And I think what I had to learn over time was challenging my facts and challenging my sources. And if, we, if I have time to play the piece, what I'm working on now, I, which is about my translator's escape from Iraq and the diaspora of his family, the constant pushing, how did you know that? What is your source? You know, sourcing it, sourcing it, sourcing it, sourcing it. And we've certainly seen what happens with sloppy journalism. So I maybe was lucky that I never got caught out in something, you know, that was a blatant untruth, because I, I, I didn't really push it back in the day. Does that help? Um, just listening to everything you have to say, I find so oh gosh, um, intriguing. And I think sometimes um, I take advantage of the fact all the opportunities I have for myself now being a female young journalists entering just into it. But I was wondering what challenges you face as a female journalist in your career. Would you mind if I answered that by playing some tape? Of course. Okay. Um, and we will get to the next question. Could we go to the Sam Berg traveling salesman piece? Okay. This is absolutely one of my favorite pieces of all time. Now, my first bit of tape isn't going to answer your question, but the second one will. Meet Sam Berg. He rolls up in a silver Mercedes. He's 50 years old, tall and straight. Wow, that's a great suit. Is that Armani? No. Looks like it, though. No, he wears a tailored Work shirt with, with monogrammed cuffs, a purple paisley handkerchief and purple paisley tie, and a manicure, shining only slightly less brightly than his ring, a two-and-a-half-dollar gold piece his father gave him. Sam Berg dresses for success. It's one of the lessons he learned early on in his career. When I started on the road, uh, it was 1969, they sent me down to travel with a guy by the name of Gene Bernard. He was, a, he was one of those slick country boys. He was as smooth as they get. Good salesman. He went out and bought himself a brand new Cadillac. Borrowed money from his brother. And he said, Sam, I drove that car. He said, I didn't park a block away like I did before. He said, I parked that car right in front of that account. 
I said, why, Gene? And here I am, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old, just going on the road. He says, people like to buy from success. He says, when I pull up, this guy doesn't know me from Adam. But he looks at my car and he looks at my suit. He says, I have to talk to this guy because undoubtedly he's successful. And stuck in my mind throughout the 23 years I've been a rep. Uh, you like to look good, even when things are tough. Speaking of the devil. But it's not the devil. It's his wife calling to ask what he wants for dinner. This guy lost three quarters of a million dollars worth of business while I was with him. It's an unbelievable piece. We're not going to hear it. It's 18 minutes long. But here's the next little snippet. The next stop is Billy Dupree's Furniture Store in Oakland. Like Prez Dominguez, Billy has owned his store for 20 years. Well, let's put it this way. Fifteen years ago, I was promoting a sofa for $2.99. Today, I'm still promoting a sofa for $2.99. I'm giving the consumer a better product at a better price with free delivery and everything else, and I still can't sell the merchandise. Why is that, do you think? Are people so scared, so worried about their own They all voted for Clinton. They don't want to buy. (laughs) (laughs) What's your most expensive sofa? The most expensive sofa we have today is probably twelve ninety five. Okay. And so I say, I'd like that twelve ninety five sofa, and I make $23,000 a year. What can you do for me? Your credit is approved. Just give me your address. <laughs> Boy, is that yeah. easy? We make leg loans in this store. Leg loans? You've got a nice-looking leg, so <laughs> we'll, we'll loan you the money to buy the sofa. There you are. What I found is that my size and my sex in many ways worked in my favor. Um, in this, not in the sense of coming on to people, but in the sense of them not expecting me to, to be, to take me seriously. There's a, uh, we actually crashed our program as Chris and I were getting this together because there's something I so wanted to pull, especially for young women here. And it comes from Scott's pink plastic flamingo question. I, when I started to cover steel, had to meet the CEO of Jones and Lachlan Steel. They had closed five plants in the Mahoning Valley. And this man uh, came in at 7.30 in the morning in an all-male club called the Decaying Club in Pittsburgh with all of his minions, and then there was me. And I was so scared. Uh, I had been up all night thinking about my questions, thinking about my questions, trying to be... I, I used to develop a whole other inside identity called Zelda Thorne, my alter ego. And this came from my mother's own bipolar traditions. And my feeling was, if mom could be Cleopatra or Sheba, or Marie Antoinette, all of which are incarnations she adopted, then I could be Zelda Thorne. Nobody wanted to talk to Jackie Lydon, but who wouldn't want to speak to Zelda Thorne? So smart, so witty. So <laughs> Zelda went out to talk to this guy at the Decaying Club, and you hear me saying, do you think you have any <coughs> obligations to the people beyond the pensions you pay them? Do you think that what's good for you is bad for your employees. And this guy goes, and he's obviously been media coached. I don't understand your question. Well, I mean, what could be more direct than that question? And so I repeated it. And essentially, I got this guy to say, well, if I didn't improvise, I'd still be making buggy whips. And I'm sure that he thought that it was a very, we actually didn't find that part earlier, but he had said that. And I'm sure he thought that it was a very emphatic thing to say, but he came off looking like a real jerk. I find that being female, people just don't know what to expect. It's really fantastic to talk to women. Women are great storytellers in Middle Eastern cultures. That's who you can get close to. If I want to go and work in Iraq, I can dress in hijab and the men can't. 
So I, you just use what you have. I mean, I suppose if you're, you know, you use what you have, whether it's femalehood or malehood or, you know, we use our sex, we use our voice, we use our minds, we use our hands. And I don't want to ever be held back because I'm female. And believe me, they didn't want to send, you know, women in the first Gulf War, but that's a whole long story and you can ask me about it later. Um, one more question. You talk about finding your own voice and trusting it, cultivating it. Um, maybe Zelda Thorne was part of that discovery. Talk, please, about how you found your own voice. It took time. It took a lot of time, and I would say that my colleagues were incredibly supportive, particularly Jonathan Baer. Uh, we used to talk about giving ourselves permission to inhabit the role of questioner. You know, and, and when you host a show and you're live, you know, in front of 13 million people, uh, one of the uh, people, uh, the older DJs that I mentored under or whatever, worked for in commercial radio, used to say, Jackie, I'm going to own this town. I'm going to own this town. This is here in Chicago. He's at WLS. He didn't wind up owning the town. But he believed that he did. And he used to say, you're not talking to six million people lined up side by side. You're talking to that lonely, lonely man up there who's, who's opening a drawer and he's pulling out a shirt and he's wondering if his Saturday night date is going to like him in that shirt and what tie he should wear. You're talking to that first-time mother who's rocking that baby in her arms and thinking that you are her only friend. And it really got me into a sense of, I can engage with you. And it's one-on-one. -on -one. And then it was repeating that over time. And I used to just be terrified sometimes before some of these things. And Smokey used to say, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. I know you can do it. And he used to say, just talk to your pen. Hold your pen in front of yourself and talk to your pen. I have talked to my pen for years. <laughs> so that was how. I'm so, I guess we have to almost conclude, and I was so dying to play my last bit of tape. But... Shall we go? I mean, are you guys like ready to rock out of here? Because, okay, this is, um, we won't play the getting in, but I've been working on um, a story in Iraq over the last year. I started my leave of absence last November. I've made four trips to Iraq since then, and I'll go back at Christmas. I live with an Iraqi family when I go there. I don't stay at the hotels. My driver is my savior, and um, I and setting this new book called Vox Babylonia about my former interpreter and his family and other contemporary people, all civilians, nobody military, in Iraq. Um, so now Vox, the book is not actually going to be a travelogue of these other countries. So Isho Yusuf was someone I met in 1991. Now the other thing I want to tell you is that you can't do a better story than your tape, usually. I mean... That whole mighty subject, mighty theme, mighty novel, you have got to find a good talker. Otherwise, it's just, you know, you can't create it. And this, everybody who used to go to Iraq had minders from the government, and usually these people were first-class, you know, hacks who uh, impeded you as much as possible. But in the summer of 91, a year after the invasion of Kuwait, I'd been based in London, was then sent over there and never got back to London, I met a man who was one of Saddam Hussein's top translators, and he engaged me with the following remark. You know, I have translated the Satanic verses for Saddam Hussein. Well, I thought that was pretty interesting. 
And he proceeded to uh, tell me this whole story, and he wanted to defect, and I thought he had a snowball's chance in hell. And one day he, he was surprised by some Italian journalists who turned their cameras on him while we were traveling in a car and said, what do you think of Saddam? The guy proceeds to denounce Saddam. This is like a death sentence. And um, I knew he wanted to help me, me to help him to, to defect, and I said, Isha, I cannot help you. It is not a journalist's obligation. But, of course, I did try and help him. Just a little bit, I, I testified for him uh, in front of a UNHCR, uh, in a phone call to, from the United Nations High Commission on Refugees. He escaped. He made it to America. I was astonished. I one day got a call, Jackie, it's Isha Youssef, where are you? I'm on Michigan Avenue. Nine months after this. We always said that if Saddam fell, we would go back together. So last year, when I started my leave, that's exactly what we did, and I did a 25-minute documentary that aired on All Things Considered last February which is the last thing I've done on the air now for a bit. I will just play you the end of it. By the time you hear this, we have been through the incredible experience of coming back into Iraq, the tearful reunion with the family, the breakdown where he leads me around the city, where he's been tortured. Uh, he thinks that if we go north, if we just go north, it's going to be better. He has to believe it's going to be better. If any of you have ever read Candide, I was traveling with Pangloss. You know, everything was the best it could be in this best of all possible worlds. We go to Kirkuk. We're on this block, not that block. The car bomb goes off. We would have been dead if we'd been on the other block. We are, you know, through the glass. We're swept into this building. People are screaming. People are bleeding. People are shooting off guns. We're totally right in the middle of it, not, not even thinking, like, what if there's a second bomb? We're idiots. Julia Buckley produced this piece. She did a brilliant, brilliant job. We keep going north. Isha's Christian. And he thinks that if we can just get to where he's from, this village near Zako, which is five miles from the Turkish border, that everything will be all right. And he manages to find his old parish, and he says, you wait, Jackie, this community is 20% Christian. By the time we got there, he'd been gone for 12 years, right? It was 1% Christian. And so now he's having that realization, and the communion class is singing to him in his own language, which is the Aramaic allegedly the language that Jesus spoke. Isho, by the way, means Jesus. So I was traveling around Mesopotamia with a man named Jesus. So this is the end of that piece. <laughs> culmination of a long journey in which home is mostly a memory and his fears of even this small presence of his old life vanishing are realized. When the hymn is finished, Isho breaks down. <coughs> I grow up this way. Having these beautiful songs, reciting verses from the Holy Bible, and enjoying a beautiful life. But that was a short-lived period of my life. It was killed.
my hope is that this will continue. On this land, Father's land, is Mesopotamia. These young boys and girls are so hopeful for having a better future in, on this land. My hope is that they would stay, would not do what I did to leave this place. God bless them. Live in peace. That's my hope. So that's the end of the last thing I did for NPR, and I don't know when I'll do another thing. But um, unless there's any more questions, I think we'll conclude. You can certainly ask me questions outside. I want to thank you so much for this opportunity. <laughs>